Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. To be totally honest, the beginning of the Bible, and especially Genesis chapters 1 through 11, are a pretty sordid, ugly tale. In chapters 1 through 3, we see the generous, powerful, eternal God create a good world, along with people like us bearing his image to inhabit it. But those people buy into Satan's lies, rebel against God's good rule, and cast themselves and creation into a state of death and corruption. As punishment for their sin, Adam and Eve are exiled from God's presence in the Garden of Eden. In chapter 4, we see humanity's degradation continue as Cain murders his brother Abel out of anger and jealousy. In chapters 5 through 8, we see a recreation of sorts. God thoroughly floods the thoroughly sinful world, but spares the righteous Noah and his family. But then in chapter 9, we see that the contagion of sin still lives on, even in someone like Noah. Finally, in chapters 10 and 11, we see the offspring of these sinners once again causing trouble. Driven by ambition and pride, they attempt to make a name for themselves by building a massive tower reaching to the heavens. That is, until God thwarts their efforts. It's not exactly the most heartwarming story, is it? The beginning of the Bible. After God creates us and we fall into sin, almost everything humanity does seems to be bad. But in the midst of all the darkness of these opening chapters, we also learn that somehow, some way, God is committed to redeeming these sinful people and this fallen world. We see the first glimmer of this redemption in Genesis 3, verse 15. In the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sin, God says this to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. One day the serpent will get what's coming to him. But here's the big question. How exactly will God do it? How exactly will God redeem us? Well, considering we're fresh out of Easter, the ultimate answer is, of course, Jesus Christ. God's son, fully God and fully man, crucified, resurrected, ascended, and one day returning, is the agent by whom sinful people and our fallen world are and will be redeemed. But the Bible is also a pretty big book. And there's a lot that happens between Genesis 11 and Matthew 1. We don't jump straight from the Tower of Babel to the Virgin Mary. As it turns out, God's plan to redeem his people and his world starts much earlier. And it takes a more winding road than we might expect. 
it begins with a seemingly random man from a seemingly random family in a seemingly random place. Nevertheless, this is a man we Christians would do well to learn more about. We first see this man in Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 27. These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Izcah. Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we continue reading, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for these people. Thank you for this place. Thank you for the privilege of preaching your word. Thank you for the privilege of looking around and seeing siblings in Christ. Regardless of our differences, regardless of how little we have in common, we have you in common. So, Lord, I pray that you would unite us together as a family in Christ. I pray that you would mature us by the power of your spirit, by the power of your word, this morning as we read it, but well beyond this morning too. And Lord, I pray that you would provide for us as a church, materially, spiritually, individually, materially, and spiritually. And Lord, help us be good stewards of all that you give to us. Help us know our history. Help us read your word and see ourselves in the pages, because as we discussed last week, we are part of the story that you have written and are writing and will one day write. Help us find our place in this story, both in light of Easter, but also in light of someone like Abram. Help us understand who we are and understand who you are, thanks to the gift of your word. And I thank you for your son, Jesus, who, as we celebrated last week, rose from the dead. But that's something we celebrate every week, and that's today included. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Before we go any farther, first things first. God speaks. God speaks. He speaks the world into existence. He speaks with Adam and Eve. 
He speaks to the serpent. He speaks with Cain. He speaks to Noah. He speaks to himself just in these opening chapters. And here he speaks to Abram. We worship a talkative God who speaks to his people. Now, Abram was just minding his own business. He's doing what ancient men do, caring and providing for himself, his wife, Sarah, and his nephew, Lot, who, due to Sarah's barrenness, may have been their designated heir. You notice that Abram did not seek God. God spoke to Abram. There's nothing obviously remarkable about Abram. He doesn't even get the same sort of praise that Noah got as this righteous man. Abram is just a guy. But God takes the initiative. God speaks. God brings us exceedingly normal. And in fact, kind of old and worn out couple into his grand plan of redemption. Abram and Sarah will be a key cog in it, though her barrenness is an obstacle. Continuing in verse two, God says, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God doesn't just speak to Abram. God makes Abram a promise. Now, this promise is heavy on blessing, isn't it? If you look closer, some form of the word blessing is used five times in just two verses. Some very clever biblical scholars have pointed out that, ironically, the word curse was also used five times throughout Genesis 1 through 11. It seems that God is reversing that curse through Abram and his family. And that reversal begins with this promise that Abram will have land, descendants, And a great name. And somehow, some way, God is going to bless the entire world as a result. Now, finally, just one more bit of irony. God tells Abram that he will make his name great. God makes Abram's name great. Just one chapter ago. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. We saw the kind of destruction that can happen when people try to make their own names great. People try to make people's names great. But with Abram, this is something different. God's the one doing the work. We continue in verse 4. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, we did read that Abram's father died at 205. So maybe in that relative sense, 75 is no big deal. 
But we will learn that 75, even in that context, was too old to have kids. And that's a big part of the promise that God gave Abram. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. There's another obstacle to this promise. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. So God speaks, verse 1. God makes a promise, verses 2 and 3. And Abram responds. The word go, back in verse 1, was a command. And what does Abram do? He goes. He trusts. He obeys. Abram does this without clarity. He's been given no details. He's got no guarantees that this is going to work out. Right off the bat, we see that Abram is some combination of brave, naive, and faithful. And when they finally arrive in Canaan, Abram worships. He calls upon the name of the Lord. He speaks to the God who first spoke to him. So these nine verses, Genesis 12, 1 through 9, are the genesis of Abram's biblical, historical, and theological legacy. That legacy is this, that Abram is a man of faith. He's a man of faith. The Apostle Paul discusses Abram's faith in Romans chapter 4. As we'll see next week, Abram's faith was counted to him as righteousness. We'll talk about why that's so important. Elsewhere in the New Testament, James holds Abram up as a positive example of faith. In chapter 2 of his letter, he argues that Abram's faith was proven by his works. If Abram had not listened to God and actually obeyed, we wouldn't be talking about him today. And then finally, look at what the author of Hebrews says about Abram. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 8. This long chapter, this long list of Old Testament faithful people. By faith, Abraham which we'll talk about why the name changes at some point. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. 
For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Considering the lack of evidence available to him, Abram took a massive risk when he believed and obeyed God's call in Genesis 12. We'll see just how Abram believes in the coming weeks with an even more difficult form of obedience. But we can already see why Abram's legacy is one of faith. One theologian writes that Abram casts a shadow which extends across the whole Bible. Why? It's because of his uncommon faith. But with all that said, that doesn't mean that Abram was perfect. In Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20, Abram goes to Egypt in the midst of a famine. And as an out-of-towner in a foreign land, Abram was vulnerable, and his wife was beautiful. So what does Abram do? He pretends Sarah is actually his sister. That way someone doesn't feel the need to kill him to get to her. And this course of action raises all sorts of questions about Abram. For example, why did he leave Canaan in the first place? Did he not trust God to provide for him in that famine? You may notice that God plays no obvious role in the chain of events until he bails Abram out at the end. Another question is, what made Abram think it was a good idea to deceive Pharaoh? I mean, what was his long-term game plan here? Maybe most powerfully, how can we admire a man so willing to selfishly sacrifice his wife's purity and well-being to save his own skin? That's a tough one. Why did Abram think it right to invite God's wrath upon an unsuspecting people? And finally, why didn't Abram learn his lesson? We have to ask that question because Abram pulls almost the exact same stunt again in chapter 20. So what do we learn from this black mark on Abram's resume? Well, we learn that while Abram was a man of great faith, he was still just a man. In the words of one wise old pastor, even the best of men are men at best. There's only one hero in the Bible at the end of the day, and it's not Abram. The story continues in chapter 13 when Abram returns home. And by this point, he's doing extremely well for himself. The same is true for his nephew Lot. They go their separate ways so as not to intrude on each other's territory. And as far as we can tell, Lot does not consult God about where he should go which comes back to bite him later. But most importantly in chapter 13, even after Abram's foolishness in Egypt, God reaffirms his promise. Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. 
God says to Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Abram goes up and down, but the promise stays the same. Finally, in chapter 14, we see Abram flex some muscle. Once again, someone from his family finds themselves in a pickle due to their own decisions. Lot is caught in the middle of a war. So Abram swoops in, saves Lot, and encounters a mysterious king named Melchizedek. But this king doesn't praise Abram. He praises God. Chapter 14, starting in verse 19. Melchizedek says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek understands something that we just said. He understands that Abram isn't the real hero. Now, we'll stop there for this morning. We'll continue Abram and Sarah's story next week, being reminded of their flaws and once again seeing God's patience with them. Chapters 15 and 17 will show us just how kind God really is to these sinners he's chosen by his grace. And right in the middle of it, chapter 16, we'll see just how badly they need God's grace. We'll also see that Abram, the vaunted man of faith, was not without his moments of doubt. But for today, what are our main takeaways? I once had a preaching professor who taught us that every sermon is meant to help its hearers know something, believe something, or do something. And I think this sermon, this text, can give us one of each. So what should we know from the beginning of Abram's story? Well, perhaps most importantly, we need to know that this story isn't really about Abram and Sarah. This is God's story. They're not the main characters. God is. Remember how the story started? God speaks. The same is true for us. Abram and Sarah were players in God's story of redemption. And so are we to this day. Now, that does not mean that our lives don't have meaning or that our actions aren't important. But it does mean that we need to locate ourselves properly in the narrative. We are not God. We are not the heroes. And if we think that we're independently and autonomously writing our own stories, that we are solely responsible for giving our lives purpose, or that we need to separate ourselves from God and blaze our own trails, 
then we are deeply misunderstanding God, the world, and ourselves. And we will get hurt in the end. God is the main character of this book. And God is the main character of our lives. The star of the story isn't a random guy from Haran. Or you or me. God's the star of the story. It's a guy from Bethlehem who will prove to be anything but random, who really holds the story together. Jesus will be the true fulfillment of God's promise to bless all the nations of the world. Abram was just the first step along the way. Likewise, Jesus is the star in our stories. We only fulfill our God-given purpose when we understand that Jesus is the straw that stirs the drink of our existence and submit to his lordship and his leadership. That's something to know from this story. But what should we come to believe from reading the beginning of Abram's story? Even in the earliest chapter of the Bible, those chapters as far away from Jesus in the timeline as we can possibly get, we see God's gracious character on display. We see his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, and his holiness as opposed to our faithlessness, our instability, and our sin. Abram was a complicated guy, wasn't he? We've already learned that just a few chapters in. One minute he trusts God deeply, and the next he is profoundly unwise. One minute he's humbly submitting to God's plan, and the next he's coming up with his own. One minute he's a coward, and the next he's a hero. But before we get too critical of Abram, can't we admit that we are often quite similar? We too are conflicted souls, capable of much good by God's grace, but also capable of much evil as sinners. But through all of our ups, downs, successes, failures, triumphs, defeats, virtues, and vices, God remains the same. Think about all the times God could have given up on humanity. He would have been totally justified in wiping his hands clean of the whole project. After chapter 3, for example, or chapter 4, or chapter 6, or chapter 11. But time and time and time again, God is faithful, trustworthy, and holy. To the point of eventually, graciously, giving his only son on a cross so that we might be reconciled to him once and for all. Even after all the mess that humanity causes, God does not abandon his plan to redeem us and our world. That tells us something about God's character. May we believe in the God that we read about in these chapters, in this book. And finally, what might these early chapters of Abram's story challenge us to do? Again, it's know, believe, do. 
Well, simply put, we must trust the promises that God has given us. Of course, we don't have all the same promises that Abram did. There's no guarantees that we'll have land or offspring or a great name, at least in this side of existence. But what promises do we have? We have promises like justification by faith in Christ. Promises like sanctification by the Holy Spirit. Promises like our future glory in God's presence. Promises like our adoption into God's family. Promises like our sins being forgiven. Promises like our eternal glory in the presence of God's. But don't just say you believe these things. As James argues, and as Abram imperfectly showed, prove it with your actions. Don't just know something in your head. Don't just believe something in your heart. Don't just say something with your mouth. Do something with your hands and your feet. Embrace God's promises. Go, trust, obey, worship. Again, God's big plan of redemption wasn't on hold from Genesis 3 to Matthew 1. It began much earlier than that, in a desert of Haran, with an old man named Abram. Someday God would reverse the curse. Someday sinful humanity and a fallen world would be restored to fellowship with him. Someday all the nations would be blessed. In the end, it's accomplished through Jesus. But in a very real way, it begins with Abram. Look at Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. It's a passage you may have read before. The Great Commission that many Christians know very well, but read it now with God's promise to Abram in mind. Jesus says to his disciples after his death and resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God once told an imperfect yet faithful man named Abram to go. That way the nations of the world would be blessed. In Matthew 28, God once again tells imperfect but faithful people, to go. Preach the gospel to the nations. That group of disciples includes us. We too must go. We too must offer the blessing of Christ to the world. How would God redeem sinful people in a fallen world? Well, he would start with Abram. He would finish it through Christ. And he announces it today. Through people like us. Let's pray.
Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we've had together. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would be with us in the weeks ahead as we study the life of Abram, the promises that you made to Abram. I pray that we would not be insulted by the idea that we are not the heroes of the story, that we are not the main characters. I pray that we would be content to, in some ways, function like Abram, function like Sarah, people who you made in your image, people who needed redemption, and people whom you used in spite of their imperfections to accomplish that redemption. Thank you that they were part of the story and that we get to be part of the story as well. But Lord, also remind us that the real hero is Christ. Thank you that as you spoke to Abram so many generations ago, telling him to go to the promised land, you have spoken most definitively through your son, Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises that we see in the Old Testament. All those promises about restoration and healing and reconciliation, they're all fulfilled in Christ. So, Lord, thank you for the promises that you made long ago, but thank you for Christ who fulfills them all. And help us find our part, find our place in that story of redemption. We talked about it last week. We talk about it again this morning. Help us find our place in your story of redemption. Thank you that you spoke, that you took the initiative, that even today you still speak. The gospel is proclaimed among the nations that all the world might be blessed and help us be a part of that plan. We love you. Thank you for your grace, your kindness, your mercy, your patience with us. People who need it desperately the same way Abram did. Thank you that. As we change, as we go up and down, as we waver, you remain the same. We love you, we worship you, we glorify you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.